copies over in uh, the rotunda. I'm not 100% positive. I know we've run out. So if you haven't been to the rotunda recently, get over there, check out the new visitor center exhibit. Uh, we were involved in that. And so I've spent a lot of time really talking about uh, the enslaved and their experience at the university. And what I want to do today is try to kind of flip that, flip that script and talk about the students and talk about the culture at the university. And this is a way to explain why do students behave the way they behave before 1865. So, uh, and, and this is, I think this is pretty interesting. So this is not about condemning them. Um, we, we get some complaints as we do our commission work, like slavery's over, get over it. It is, but we're still dealing with its legacies today. And I think this history is really, really interesting. And I, 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 this is not about blaming the students. This is about explaining how they could do all the things they could do. So I'm going to try to walk you through a bit of that today. But I want to do some scene setting so you understand the context here. And we'll see if I can operate technology. Okay, good. I apologize, too. I'll try to read this out for you. This worked fine on my 24-inch monitor in my office. But in this room, I'm like, I can't read it. So, and I bumped up the font on everything. So apologies. What, what you need to know, and you probably are aware of this, right? The University of Virginia is the first public higher education institution in Virginia, right? There is no public higher education in Virginia. There's really no public education in Virginia in 1817 or 1825. It is the flagship public university in an important state. Virginia in the 19th century is the largest and most important slaveholding state in the U.S. It has, in 1860, a half a million enslaved people living in the state. So it is, at any moment, up to 1865, the center of slaveholding in the United States. And that's why, in 1861, when Virginia secedes, the capital of the Confederacy, which for about two weeks was in Montgomery, immediately moves to Virginia. This is a very important location. Albemarle County, where they're picking this university. Um, today, when you come, uh, I don't know if you guys have time to get out and get downtown. Right, It's kind of a bustling, urbane city. It was anything but in the 19th century. When the university is being constructed, it's a hamlet. It's a crossroads, basically, where a dirt road connecting the Shenandoah Valley to Richmond meets with a dirt road leading down to the James River in Scottsville. Scottsville in 1820 is kind of the metropolis. It's not much of one. So when the university opens, Albemarle County is a center of concentrated slaveholding. There are quite a few uh, people who own lots of people. There are 10,000 enslaved people living in the county in 1820. This is over half the population of the county. So it's a rural agricultural plantation um, economy where enslaved people do the work. Both in the county and at the university, one of the themes we're going to talk about is violence. Right? Violence upholds the slave system, and it's a feature of life in 19th century Virginia. It's frankly a feature in many ways of 19th century life in America, but it has a particular valence that's related to slavery here at the university. So the university, as soon as it opens in 1825, it becomes the largest urban settlement within 50 miles. So overnight, Thomas Jefferson designs what becomes the largest urban settlement in central Virginia. 
So that's the context when the university opens. So who were the students? This is a really, I don't know how well you can see the picture. That's Blue Cottage, which is uh, where Cars Hill now stands. It was a private boarding house across from the university. And what I love about this picture is you see our, our southern UVA gentleman on the balcony, seated in repose, and hidden in plain sight, Reuben, an enslaved man who lived and worked at that boarding house. So most UVA students up to 1865 were from southern states. And they were from, uh, typically from areas with great concentrations of slaveholding. I think this is important to understanding the cultural dynamic I'm talking about today. Today, UVA is a bargain as a public school. In 1825 or 1840, it was not. It was an expensive school to attend. So even though it was a public institution dedicated to creating an engaged citizenry, it was really uh, a place only uh, people of significant means typically could attend. So as the flagship state university in the most important southern state, it's really created to develop statesmen who are going to lead society. And they're going to do that. Students often had little experience when they arrive in Charlottesville, which again is a hamlet at that point, with urban living or with public education right, of any kind. They've largely been privately tutored at home. They have mostly grown up uh, in, in fancy manners. They've been raised in luxury in those manor homes, and they had been indulged. They had been raised to be masters of men. And this is really one of the important themes here today, is that concept of mastery. So who were these students? All right, this is, I, I love this quote. This is David Hunter Struther. He's known as Port Crayon. He does drawings. I'll show you the drawing in a minute. Uh, this is an 1853 quote about UVA students. It gives me great pleasure to say that, although the vivacity of these blooded cults at the university frequently leads them into all sorts of deviltries and excesses, they have almost invariably the manners of gentlemen. Yeah. And, and this is the actual quote at the, the bottom from the image. So I, I think this is great. This quote captures the mythical memory of early A UVA students, right? They're full of life, young men of energy that could not always be contained, and that explains their behaviors. Well, I, yeah, on a surface level, that works, but I think there's a lot more to that going on here. And what I like about this quote is how it hints at much of what I'm going to talk about today. It compares the students to blooded cults, right? We just had... Uh, right, both the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness for, oh, this is what, over a century of horse racing. Blooded thoroughbreds are something right, that are maintained by elite families in 19th century and 18th and 19th century America. So comparing them to the, the bloodline of these horses is really important. And horse riding is going to be one of the themes we talk about today. Most wealthy families could trace clear lineages of their fine steeds, and they could do the same with their own wealth and power. And I'm hoping many of you have read this book. Okay, so this is a great book. I use it with my students every year. I'm going to quibble with it just a little bit, but this is going to be fun. It's a, again, it's a great book. It's Rot, Riot, and Rebellion. 
And on the image on the left there, that's the image of Port Crayon. That's, that's the David Hunter Struther quote I just shared with you. That's a UVA student. Uh, and I, I joke with students today, if you, uh, there are not many students around right now, but if you come when classes are in session, there's a look. You can tell a UVA student from um, some distance. And I joke with them about it, right? Why, why do you wear the Patagonia vest? You could just go to Old Navy and buy one for $15. So we have a little bit of this today with us as well, right? We wear brand names. UVA students, and this is typical of elite men at the time, they're going to dress their station, and this is really, really important. You have to look a certain way because if you don't look that way, nobody's going to believe you are that way. So two journalists published the book Rot, Riot, and Rebellion. It is a, just a, it's a great read. It's a cinematic account of the history of the early university. And it catalogs the often outrageous behavior that, t that seems outrageous to us today, that we have trouble understanding. And again, I assign this book every year to my first year class. We have a lot of fun with it. It breezily explains away student behavior, much like Port Crayon did, as a result of them being wealthy teenage brats who, quote, came to lark and delays. They were spoiled, self-indulgent, and often led a life of dissipation. Well, yeah, that's true. But there's so much more to the story, and I want to explain why they behave that way, and I want you to see that is actually not separate from the other behaviors that, you will, that we'll talk a little bit about today, and I think that you will recognize as uh, the higher qualities of what you hope students are like at the university. So, the UVA student, master, gentleman, and statesman-in-waiting. So I want to unpack the brat myth a little bit and instead explain it as a series of cultural forces that those students are responding to and participating in. UVA students were learning to be gentlemen. They were learning to be masters. They were learning to be statesmen with honorable reputations. So we're going to try to unpack honor a little bit today as well. So we're going to start with the idea of the gentleman. What is the 19th century gentleman? Going to have a little fun with this, too. I had so much fun thinking about what do these images look like. So I know you all know the 19th century gentleman when you see one. Right? In film, there are so many versions. They were men of property and power who were destined to lead. They're a sort of aristocracy. To paraphrase, and the, the, the gentleman at the bottom is from a recent movie, a Quentin Tarantino movie, Django Unchained. He's playing with all these myths and characters and kind of turning them on their heads. That gentleman, played by Leo DiCaprio, is named Calvin Candy. He says, gentlemen, I hope I have your curiosity and attention. Well, I hope I have your curiosity and attention. We also have, I know you all know Clark Gable. This is Rhett Butler. He is one example of the Southern Gentleman. This is a lost cause film from the 1930s, Gone with the Wind. His character is one of the classic Southern Gentlemen. He's privileged, he's practical, he's educated, he's quick to fight, he's a gambler, a drinker, and he is manly, right? He is virile. He knows his way around a room full of ladies. And Gone with the Wind gives us the other, and this is really important. There are, there's more than one typical 19th century gentleman. Our other is Ashley Wilkes, right? That's Leslie Howard playing Ashley Wilkes in the same film. He's the Victorian gentleman. And this is, as the 19th century wears on, he is more and more representative of the typical gentleman. 
Brett Butler is more typical of what endures a lot longer in the South and I think gets at some of the student behavior. So the Victorian gentleman is selfless, loyal, privileged, educated, paternal, honorable. So, and then again, Leo DiCaprio, right? Privileged, well-dressed, it's really important, well-dressed. He's an enslaver and a plantation owner. That's also part of this vision of gentlemanly power in the South. And we end with, I wanted to have a little fun, on the right, Burt Reynolds as Boss Hogg in the movie adaptation of The Dukes of Hazzard, right? So this is the, uh, the dime store candy version of what you see in the other. Um, and we could even go, there's several Looney Tunes characters that play with this as well. But I think these are sufficient to explain this gentleman as master. So these are, again, kind of the mythical images, but I really like how the two characters from Gone with the Wind portray the two pieces of the puzzle in this story. So we have two unidentified, unnamed UVA students from the 1860s pictured here. And you'll notice they're dressed very similarly to those mythical images from uh, film. So most UVA students have been raised to mastery. They had already learned the gruesome art of commanding and disciplining the enslaved as they prepared to be leaders of men and plantation owners in their own right. That background is going to powerfully shape their behavior at UVA in ways sometimes where you go, enslaved people aren't involved. What does this have to do? But it's there. It's one of the pieces of the puzzle, and it's connected. These are threads that are all woven together in the culture of the time. So... UVA students could be, again, a little hard to see. I'm going to have to work on font size. I can't read it. Right? The rot riot and rebellion of UVA students wasn't really the fault of a spoiled few, nor could that behavior be separated from other 19th century UVA student characteristics. So right, they are, in fact, whole and complicated people, and they behave differently given the context of the moment. So they could be studious. They could be academically lazy. We have plenty of examples of both of those before 1865. They could be religious. They could be drunken. They could be spoiled. Some were uninterested in learning. They were imperious. They were randy and even violent. And again, any one student could contain all those multitudes over the course of their time at UVA. So again, some are all the above but the situational context determined how they behaved. Thus, a studious and devout student could, in a specific context, violently assault an enslaved person or visit a brothel or even skip classes or challenge a professor to a duel. This was all part of what it meant to be a gentleman and a master at the time. So, regardless of their interest in learning, religious, religiosity, or even academic acumen. I'll pause for a moment to tell a great story about an 1850 attendee of the university, Edward Alfred Pollard. I'm pretty sure in his uh, less than a year here, he was in a class maybe three times. He's literally, he shows up every month, academic lassitude, academic lassitude, missed class, missed class, and he ultimately leaves. So that, that's, that's certainly a possibility. So regardless of that, they all participate in the culture of mastery and regularly attempt to demonstrate their status as young masters. And that fact powerfully shapes 
all the social interactions of students with professors, with each other, with enslaved people, with hotel keepers, with women, and throughout the day. So it really shapes what goes on at the university. And there we go, there's the outfit again. I just, I had so much fun. When you deal in the 19th century, you don't get a lot of images. I had to spend a couple weeks trying to dig up good images here, which is, which is a blast. But there they are, right? This, is, this might as well be Leonardo DiCaprio. So mastery. One of the key components of gentlemanly mastery is commanding inferiors. So one of the key tenets is that, right? Anyone who sees, them, sees themselves as a master did not labor or follow orders. Instead, they gave orders and expected those whom they ordered to do what they were told. A master did not do manual labor, just not at all. A master wore a clothing appropriate to his aristocratic status. And you can see here, right, this is actually from a sugar plantation. But you get the idea that right, clothes tell you the status. If I separated out individuals, you'd know who was enslaved, you'd, you'd know who was a laborer, and you'd know who was someone who wanted you to think they were a master. So one is commanding labor and commanding inferiors. Next, mastery involves disciplining inferiors. So a master assumes masterly prerogative. He assumes that his commands will be followed without question and without any disrespect, which is a really vaporous term. What is disrespect? You'll see with students, it's pretty much anything they disagree with. They pack a lot in there. So if a master's orders are not followed, the master without compunction would use physical force to compel obedience. The whip, seen here, is the tool you use to discipline inferiors. To be on the receiving end of the whip was to be seen as servile. So even if you, were, if, if you were a student and someone took the whip to you, they were treating you as an inferior. So again, to employ the whip is the prerogative of the master. So in the context of the slave south and here in Virginia, this most frequently means correcting, that's the phrase we see a lot in the records, correcting enslaved people through whippings and beatings. It's usually for perceived disobedience and perceived disrespect, and that's important. It's not, right, these aren't quantifiable categories. If you are a master and you think you have been disrespected, you have been disrespected. And there's a couple more images here, right? Mastery includes the power of life and death. These are images from a 19th century version of Frederick Douglass's uh, autobiography of his time in slavery and escape from slavery. It includes, of course, an enslaved man being whipped, and even in one case where an enslaved man dove into a creek to avoid a beating, and the master pulled out a gun and shot him. So this is, this is part of the story. And this can be heard really clearly, this idea about mastery, can be, when you listen to UVA students. They are infrequently called before the bar, called before the faculty to answer for their behaviors, but particularly when they are um, what we would see as abusing inferiors today, they explain it in a very particular way that speaks to mastery. So just listen to UVA students themselves as they pass their days in classrooms, 
learning, in hotels dining, and in dorm rooms socializing. They regularly interact with enslaved people in nearly every space at all hours of the day. Those enslaved people were enslaved by other masters. They were not owned or commanded by students. They were owned by professors, merchants, hotel keepers. This is not, it's not going to stop the students because of this culture of mastery. As emerging masters, right, they are exercising their masterly privilege, commanding and correcting enslaved people whenever they see fit. So student John Forbes, this is in 1834, he complains that his bed hasn't been made. So the hotel keeper sends an enslaved dormitory servant over to the room. The student's mad about this. The enslaved person apparently doesn't make the bed to his satisfaction. So the, uh, John Forbes kicks the enslaved person repeatedly for alleged incompetence and then yells at the hotel keeper and tells him, remember, what, what's the tool you use to discipline inferiors? The whip. He tells the hotel keeper, I'm going to whip the enslaved man in the future if my bed isn't made properly. Student John Moon, this is in 1839. He's in a dining hall. He sees an enslaved man laughing. He thinks it's disobedience. So he pulls out a knife and throws a knife at the enslaved man. For perceived insolence was the phrase he used, insolence. And here, I don't know how well you can see the quote. This is student Noble Noland in 1856. And again, I think he speaks very clearly how he understands this culture. He thought he had been disrespected by a young enslaved girl. She's about 10 or 12 years old. She's owned by Mrs. Terrell, who owns a boarding house adjacent to the university, kind of where, uh, right about where St. Paul's sits today, so just north of the university. She ran a boarding house there. She had been sent on an errand to the university, and he encountered her as she ran the errand. She had stopped to chase a butterfly or a pigeon. You know, she's a little girl. He, he exchanged words with her briefly, and uh, when that was done, he was enraged. She had disrespected him. What she had done is not acknowledged him as her master. And so she ran off. He waited several hours later. He was not done. He was going to demand satisfaction because right, he had been publicly in his mind disrespected by an inferior, and this endangered his status as a master and gentleman. So he goes to Mrs. Terrell's boarding house. He knocks on the back door, and when it opens... He grabs the girl, pulls her out, throws her on the ground, and beats her savagely until she's bleeding and unconscious. The only reason we know about this is because Mrs. Terrell complains to the university. Right? This is property damage. And so she complains about what has happened. UVA faculty, actually, they consider expelling him. They're going to expel Noland. But then, but then he agrees, after they've decided to expel him, that he'll apologize for his behavior, and it's the most non-apology you'll ever read. It's great. He's going to defend the reasoning behind his actions. And I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up because this is this culture. He speaks to it so loudly. He says, I think that the correction of a servant for impertinence, when done on, on the spot and under the spur of provocation, is not only tolerated by society, but with proper qualifications, may be defended on the ground of the necessity of maintaining due subordination in this class of persons. So this is, again, he apologizes to Mrs. Terrell, but then says, you know what? I get disrespected again. This is exactly what I will do because I'm a master and a gentleman, and this is how we deal with inferiors. So according to the student, a master's authority really extends 
to any inferior. Nolan argued he basically had not only the right to beat the enslaved girl, but society demanded that he do it. Masters must do this. The faculty agree. They don't expel him. He is not punished. And so again, this is because the faculty too participate in and understand this very culture. And so they actually find his explanation rather satisfying and correct, even though to our ears today, you go, this is, he beat a 14 to 12-year-old girl. We find it horrifying. It was not seen as such then because of who he was. Mastery also had another component to it. And the image here, entitled Virginian Luxuries, this was found on the back of a painting of a man. So it was the flip side. It had been turned around. The, other, the back of the, I think it was a poplar board, had been painted. This was hanging in a plantation home. This is what was on the back side. So it was, was not visible in the item as it was framed, but it was found decades ago. And I think it really captures something here. Right? You see on the right, masterly privilege, right? Disciplining and controlling inferiors, enslaved people. But there's another part of this. So students as masters could and should command inferiors, including enslaved people. Students as masters should expect obedience and respect from inferiors. Students as masters could and should employ violence to compel obedience if necessary. And again, as you see here, right, you basically use, you whip your inferiors. And students as masters could expect sexual access to inferiors, enslaved women in particular. So this is, again, this is not uncommon. UVA students are not exceptional in this. This is a piece of the puzzle. And I love it that someone actually painted an image of it for us. So UVA students. They're also in a culture of honor. And a piece of honor is still with us today, right? We, we've all attended this university and all uh, right, pledged allegiance to the honor code and value it as something important at the university. That piece about being honorable, not lying, stealing, or cheating, is really a part of Victorian honor and Victorian gentlemanhood. It's only a little sliver of what we see in southern slave states, right? Honor is much more complicated, and it's tied up in notions about reputation. So it's not really don't lie, steal, or cheat. It's don't be called a liar, a thief, or a cheat. So UVA students and young men of means and property across America, and again, in particular in the South, are in the process of claiming their status as gentlemen, masters, statesmen in waiting with honorable reputations. They do all this in that culture of honor. A sliver of that culture, as I said, exists today. But it's uh, what we're looking at before 1865 at the university is kind of an earlier piece of the puzzle where honor is really about public reputation. The Victorian ideal, again, the one we still cling to with the honor code, right, has a positive focus on the virtues of integrity and honesty. That's really a post-1865 uh, occurrence at UVA. You can see it beginning to emerge in the late 1840s as that Victorian idea, as that shift happens, but it doesn't really firmly take root until the later 19th century. So in the pre-Civil War South, the culture of honor focused most insistently on how others perceived a gentleman or master, or in this case, a UVA student, right, who is in the midst of, as a teenager, identity formation as a master and a gentleman. 
So they're concerned with anything that might damage or destroy how others, how others understood someone. So this is the public perception, right? You dress a certain way, and I joke, right, if you walk around UVA, I'm pretty sure I'm wearing, like, the faculty getup, right? No tie, button-down shirt, blazer. There's a look. It's the same idea at the time. You look the part, but the stakes are a lot higher in a culture of mastery and honor. So they're particularly worried, again, about if people don't think you're a gentleman, a master, or a statesman, or challenge that image of you, this is deeply threatening. So the focus is really on the negative, right? Reputational harm. Someone else's lies caused you. That's the problem. If someone lies about you in public, they might not be lying about you. But if you think it's a lie, you have to defend your honor in public. So it demands manly defense of reputation. It's often through violence. And this is, again, not confined to the South, nor confined to UVA. So, dueling. This is how equals settle disputes of honor. And if you notice, two men are shooting at one another. This is publicly consumable. You don't just grab two random pistols. You go buy a box with dueling pistols in it specifically for this. You bring seconds. There's a whole ritual and culture around reputational defense. So there are witnesses. It is a public spectacle. And it doesn't have to end up with you shooting at one another. But it can, and it often does. So again, this is about you're here publicly defending. You're willing to throw your life on the line to defend your reputation. What does it mean to participate in the culture of honor? Oh, you guys can't read that, can you? It looked great on my monitor. I'm so sorry. I was really proud of myself. So I'll try to run through this. UVA students really, 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 before 1865, have a deep concern with appearances. How one looked and what one said defined who one really was. Again, we have a little bit of that today, but this was super important. So you had to dress the part. You had to look like a gentleman or a master to be one. If you didn't dress that way, you weren't one. UVA students and college students in the South, really in America, had an obsession with words, names, and appearances. Again, it's an obsession with being treated with, and I'm going to scare quote it, respect. It's a vaporous term, and it means everyone needs to think you're a great guy and a statesman and a leader. So appearances and honor are achieved when a man's vision of himself, and this is important, you have an idea of who you are, that has to be confirmed by popular acclaim. When everyone around you goes, he's a gentleman and a leader, then you are. As soon as someone in the crowd questions that, right, your reputation has been damaged, your honor has been threatened, and you must defend it. So maintaining appearances is stressful. UVA students worry about insults. They worry about lies. And scare quotes lies. It's just things you don't think are true. And anything that's said publicly or in front of witnesses is particularly problematic. And at UVA, the students come. right? They refuse to take orders. This causes problems. And you can go back and read the university enactments, and you can see this from 1826. Right? We've been open barely a year. 
from 1826 into the 1840s, into the 1840s, there's a running battle about controlling student behavior. And early faculty respond to student behavior with, well, geez, they're all wearing silk pants and Panama hats and furs. Well, we need to just stop this. We'll make them all wear a uniform of cheap cloth. Right? This is the worst thing they could do. This is actually going to ramp up the violence. They don't always seem to get up and go to class. We'll put a bell in the rotunda and ring it every morning. Do you know what bells UVA students in the 19th century had ever heard before they got to UVA? Two bells. Church bells on Sunday and the bell on the plantation that signaled the start of the workday for the enslaved. Ringing a bell every day is going to cause a problem. So, right, they're going to feel enslaved by things. I laugh. My son won't get out of bed. He's turning 12. And we have an alarm clock, and it pretty much needs to have like a robotic arm that comes out and beats him with a, a mallet to get him out of bed. So apparently academic lassitude starts early. Um, but right, he, he objects to the alarm clock in a way these guys do. But they actually feel enslaved by being told you have to get out of bed and go to classes. They actually feel enslaved by being made to wear a uniform. And we chuckle about it today, but right, in the context of this culture, this is, this is pretty powerful stuff. Their very identity is being threatened by faculty attempts to control them. So that's going to really ramp up the violence that we ha have here. Men of honor, as I mentioned earlier, right, you had to be a, appear afraid, unafraid to die. So you have to, even if it's a metaphoric risk, you have to constantly defend your honor by demonstrating that you're willing to die in defense of your reputation. That's really important. So that you can tell, right, if that's your default position for every slight that you perceive, you're going to spend a lot of time fighting and polishing your gun and waiting for the next battle. The manly virtues of honor in this older version that persists longer in the South does not mean, and this is really important, it does not mean abstaining from swearing, gambling, drinking. And I'm going to use two terms. We have not figured out quite how to describe this, but the way it sort of shows up in the records is wenching and whoring. Right, this, is, um, this is being a virile man who has his way with women, even if you have to pay for those services. So there are brothels in downtown Charlottesville. Again, I'm going to call it downtown. There are brothels in Charlottesville. There's a brothel right next to Mrs. Uh, Terrell's boarding house. So there's brothels, I mean, immediately adjacent to the university because this is part of this culture. It sounds weird to us today. You can also reject Sabbath customs. I'm not going to church. I'm going to do all the things I was taught in church on Sunday not to do. That's okay. That's part of gentlemanly prerogative, and it's part of being a man of honor. So gambling, swearing, drinking, whoring, and impious behavior are compatible with the character of men, and honors, men of honor. So this is important. It's not a, a spoiled group of students at UVA who drives this. It's part and parcel of the culture. So even the pious student, and uh, there's a student in the 1830s named Charles Ellis. He has, his, he has the chattiest diary. We've digitized it. It's online. It is crazy to read. So he's always talking about how he's failing to live up to his kind of vic the Victorian ideals of honor uh, while dishing on all of his fellow students. And then there he is in a brothel going, well, yeah, here I am, and then calling the women in the brothel sluts. So, right, he, he's literally, depends on which side of his face we're looking at, he's both these types of honor played out here. So, again, all that behavior is really part of this. 
So there you are. You're, you're engaged in all these behaviors. You're here. Now you have to defend your reputation. What do you do to defend your honor? As a gentleman, master, and man of honor, again, you've got to be willing to fight to the death to protect appearances. You have to publicly confront anyone who disrespects you or your appearances or your status. This is whether they're an inferior or an equal or, in the case of UVA, a superior, right? This is, this is behavior that knows no boundaries because these students have been raised to mastery. They're not going to take orders from anyone. They don't think anyone is actually the superior. It also means challenging, and again, air quotes, liars. Didn't mean they actually lied. If you think they lied about you, they're liars. And then you have to whip inferiors. So this is part of the culture here. You have to engage in ritualized behaviors that mimic, right, both, that, both your selflessness, how willing you are to help everyone else, everyone else as a leader, and that lack of fear of death that characterize men of honor. So gambling. Gambling is not about violating the Sabbath. It's ritualized metaphorical dueling, right? When you're all in, you're metaphorically putting your life on the line. So claiming and defending honor, masterly, and mastery, and gentlemanly status shows up in all these activities that UVA students engage in. Wenching and whoring, right? pursuing sex with women of inferior status, often without their consent, is also a defining aspect, I know this sounds weird, of honorable gentlemanhood at this time. And there's even an element of dueling here. It's manly swordplay of sexual conquest. Uh, there's an 18th century, and this has existed since the 18th century. Another good read, if you can go find The Secret Diary of William Byrd. He's an 18th century Virginia planter. And his diary is, uh, it speaks to everything I've been talking about. The routine, horrific abuse of inferiors for disrespect. Uh, he at one point has a young enslaved girl who he whips every day, and she keeps wetting her bed. And his eventual answer, when the whippings don't cure the problem, is to make her, in his words, drink a pint of piss. He then also routinely, this is pretty rough stuff, he routinely, uh, even when he's in Williamsburg, he forces himself upon other people's enslaved women. And when he has a dispute with his wife and she retires to her chambers, he just kicks the door open and he, his, his words are, I settled it with a good flourish, right? So he uses imagery of swordplay to decide, to, to describe forcible sex with his wife. So for UVA students, fighting is a form of dueling. Having sex with prostitutes is a form of dueling. Gambling is a form of dueling, right? You're not afraid to die. You're willing to protect and defend your reputation. You're a man of honor. And again, anybody, you can fight with fists. And this gets pretty crazy. These fights are really, really uh, horrific in a way that I don't think we can fully understand. You fight with fists. You bite noses. It's a big deal. Having your nose bitten in the 19th century South is a really big deal. They're super concerned with it. You gouge eyes. Or you settle disputes with guns, right? The duel. So these are all part of this culture. And we, we hear all of them playing out at UVA at that time. Gambling, oh man, doesn't matter. You can bet on horse races, right? Students race horses up and down the lawn. They unsurprisingly do this with pistols. They shoot at the clock on the rotunda. 
So, right, this seems like it, it could be just spoiled men's behavior, or it's the prerogatives of gentlemanly honor and mastery, right? They're riding their blooded horses, they're horse racing, they're betting on the horse racing. Cockfighting, it's definitely a thing at UVA. Card playing, they're all forms of dueling, right? The gambler, through risk-taking and victory, defends manly honor. So this goes on uh, rather continuously. I'm, I'm, at the end, I'm going to give you lists of when we know students are brought before the bar to be disciplined for. There's really not a whole lot of discipline for much of this behavior, but they, it does show up in the records quite a bit. So gambling is part of this culture. Again, tearing and rending in defense of one's honor. You have to be willing to put your life on the line. And if you don't have a gun, fists and fingernails will do the trick. So they fight one another. They fight townspeople. They do it with fists. They do it with clubs. They do it with guns regularly. The image here, it's kind of hard to see, but if you look, see if I can make this thing. No, I'm not going to touch a button. It won't work. I'm scared. This guy's biting this guy's backside. Right? He's got his butt in his mouth. That's okay. So these fights are, you can read descriptions when, particularly as the 19th century wears on, this kind of fighting starts to die out in the South. Right? This version of honor dies out in areas where you have urbanization. Because imagine, right, if you live in the city, how often do you have to defend your honor as you walk down a city street block? Like every third step, right? You can't do that. You can't. If you live in a middle-class development, and you, know, you can't do it. So it's going to die out. It's something that persists in rural areas, and particularly in areas where slavery continues, because it's part of this culture of mastery. So the southern brand of American honor in the mid-19th century definitely included nose-biting as a powerful way to defend one's honor. And they're more concerned with that. I think it's funny today. We would probably think, right, genitalia would be what they care about. No, it's noses. Noses, because you can see it, and it's publicly visible. So it's a big deal. So biting one's nose, not something you want to let happen to you. So here's another one, right? He's, like, ripping this guy's lip. He's gouging this guy's eye. These are fights. If you've seen, oh, what's the Gangs of New York? Really crazy movie. And this is 19th century New York, but you see how this plays out in a working-class immigrant neighborhood in New York. It's pretty crazy. Um, but again, it, that's dying out as something people of means engage in um, as that concept of Victorian honor sweeps through, again, mostly urban areas and eventually gets to the south. So these fights are often melees. That's why I like this picture. It's just told there's a guy flipping through the air in the background. Public spectacle, multiple participants, and few actual rules. Right? This is literally eye gouging, lip pulling, nose biting. It's all fair game. The rituals that led up to the fight followed a clear script. Right? You don't end up in any of these situations without having participated in the script. Uh, and this is right in the cartoon version of this. This is sort of the you, sir, have offended my honor is the starting point for this. And you have to go through that pantomime to get to the duel. And if you don't do this, right, you've actually further insulted the person who says they're offended. So an honorable gentleman and master is unafraid to die in protection of reputation. This means participating in no-holds-bar airings of grievances and bloodletting. Again, death is a key part of this. You, 
If you Google dueling, you, you won't believe all the images that come up. It was a real thing, and it's commodified, right? This is something lots of Americans participate in. How many of you have seen Hamilton? Okay, got a few. Got a few people who made it to Hamilton, right? Hamilton dies in a duel with Aaron Burr. So this is not, again, confined to the South. Uh, and if you've, if you've seen, if you've listened to the musical, right, there's a great description of how the duel comes about. And it's really about publicly offending someone's honor. And when you don't respond to it properly, you end up having to do the duel. And, right, Hamilton fires his gun in the air. It's the ultimate I'm unafraid of death. I'm here to let you regain your reputation, but I'm unafraid to die, so I'm going to shoot in the air. And he dies. Maybe not the best policy. So the ultimate form of reputational defense is the actual duel with pistols. I'm not going to go into details here again. You're probably familiar with the basics. That's a kit. You can buy a whole kit. Right? This, is not, this is not just go grab two pistols. You have to get a dueling pistol. It comes in a box. It's got all kinds of gear. whole set of rules about it. The key part of the ritual here is the demanding of satisfaction. Duels are public, manly affairs. Again, quite common in 18th and 19th century America. Really common at UVA. In the 1850s alone, there are at least 11 different incidents involving students from Alabama who were involved in duels or threatened duels at UVA. That's just the ones we know about. I'm sure there were quite a few more. Again, the practice dies out in urbanized areas and anywhere where a property middle class arose. It, it sticks around in slave states far longer. So it's dueling, though. This is not what you do with inferiors. Right? This is with two gentlemen. So only gentlemen engage in the duel with those pistols. So dueling is for settling disputes about reputation and, and about disrespect from an inferior with an inferior, it's whipping, right? We're back to that whipping. I have a 10, 4, 12, 1145? Okay, good. <laughs> Told you I'd run long. So, again, you can just find tons of images. Look at the crowd in this image here. This goes on across the world in the 19th century, right? Anywhere in the Western world. It happens in Europe, it happens in Russia, it happens in England, it happens in France. So it's not confined to the U.S., this culture of honor is not unique to the U.S., but it has a particular valence here in the context of the South. Now, if someone demands satisfaction and challenges you to a duel, you have to go through this, right? And if you don't, if you refuse to duel or refuse to acknowledge the disrespect, you might have a problem. And so what we have is you get where the offended person just goes, okay, you're not going to let me demand satisfaction? I'll just whip you publicly. This actually happens here at UVA. It's Professor Gessner Harrison. He's a Virginian. He's a former student. He's a young professor. He has a problem for about a decade where students routinely attack him. They do not see any professor as their superior, but particularly a young one. They just can't imagine him as their equal refused to engage in pre-dual pre rituals with two students. He did so, and this is interesting, right? Professors are masters, right? They're the masters of the pupils. So 
he understands his role as one of a master, even though the student is, ha, has the exact same viewpoint. So he refuses to engage with the duel because a master does not engage in a duel with an inferior, a student. The students, however, take that as a ref, the refusal as another slight and instead decide to horsewhip him publicly. So on March 20th, 1839, these two students accost him as he was leaving a classroom. So this is happening right in the academical village. They blame him and then the faculty chairman for their suspension, and so they attack him. They pin Harrison down. They horsewhip him in front of a crowd. That's how you avenge your honor. It has to be public. Eventually, someone from the crowd intervenes, frees Harrison. Harrison still thinks he's the master. So he gets up and he chastises the students for their actions. What do the students do? They go right back to whipping him. And they do it until they have, quote, satisfied the purpose of their injury, right? They've worn out their arms and they're panting and they've sufficiently publicly whipped him that they feel they've reclaimed their honor. And then they flee. They're 19th century gentlemen. What do they flee on? A horse, right? They flee on horseback. Again, the students do not see the professor as a superior or even as an equal, and they avenge their perceived disrespect accordingly. Uh, this, this happens over and over and over again. Um, sorry, I've lost my place here. Another incident involves two students are jailed. A mob of students is so mad about this that they go downtown, they riot, and they attempt to free the students from the jail. So they're going to just rip them out of the jail. And eventually UVA decides, we're just going to let it go. Right? They're, they're, they're exercising their masterly privilege. The students who are jailed are released. They don't prosecute. So the students are still mad, though. They've not had their satisfaction demanded in this case. So they turn on the local businessman, who's the part-time constable who locked up the two students. They damage his store. So they, 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 you know, throwing chairs through windows. They wreck the place. So even mob action can constitute a defense of perceived gentlemanly honor. And this is really important in the context of UVA students, right? 200 to 600 students at the university in this period. And this is how you treat inferiors, right? You publicly whip them. And we know here at UVA, when enslaved people are accused of crimes, there's no trial. They're sent to a whipping post in Charlottesville and publicly whipped just like this. So Professor Harrison whipped like this because they didn't see him as their equal or a superior. So they, they treat him as an inferior. Mob violence. This is an image from Yale University. So student riots are really common, 19th century. They're all participating in this. They happen here in the 1830s, right? The state militia is called out twice. Rioting continues periodically at the university well into the 1840s. It's part of student existence here. They regularly march in paramilitary array, armed military array. So they publicly demonstrate on a regular basis. And they're usually responding to perceived insults to their collective status as masters and gentlemen. The insults, bad food, being forced to wear a uniform, rising to the morning bell, being held accountable for their academics, right? Grades, examination, and attendance could kick off a riot. And all the while, they're claiming the privileges of mastery and honor. 
What do they do? They ride horses. This is South Carolina College, University of South Carolina, another early 19th century university. And I, I don't have an image from UVA. I couldn't find one. But you ride horses, right? They're everywhere. You ride them on the lawn. We know they rode carriages right up the lawn and deposited people at the rotunda. I think much to the chagrin of the faculty and proctor at the university, but it was a prerogative of mastery. They're, they're more than simple transportation. Right? You're not riding the old nag. You're riding a blooded thoroughbred. It's a public demonstration of mastery and honor. Firearms. You own them and use them. Now, UVA sagely does not allow students to bring firearms on the grounds. They don't have to. There's a, there's a firing range down near now Gibson, where now Gibson stand now. So south of the lawn, you go down there, and uh, they left there, they paid a free woman of color who owned a house down there to keep their guns. So the largest arms cache in 19th century Charlottesville was a free woman of color's house with all the student guns in it. And they regularly shoot down there. But they bring those guns, as soon as it's nightfall, they bring guns onto the lawn because it's part of their masterly privilege. So again, they ride up and down the lawn, they own and use firearms whenever they can, even though, the student, even though the school doesn't allow it. I have to keep coming back to this. You have to correct and discipline the enslaved. And they interact with enslaved people at all hours of the day. Enslaved people, right, the chemical laboratory in the rotunda is staffed by an enslaved man. The first person they see every morning is an enslaved person. The people feeding them in the dining halls are enslaved people. So enslaved people are moving around the academical village landscape and interacting with students. And this often involves violence. The students routinely do it, right? As Noble Nolan said in 1856, it's their right and duty to discipline them. So that, that explains what they're doing. And you do this to anyone. Right? You can find lots and lots of images. You whip enslaved people. You whip Laborers that you meet on the street, anyone who disrespects you and you think is your inferior or has not participated in the ritual of honor, you whip. So they're not just spoiled. Right? They're meeting the demands of the culture they're participating in and meeting the expectations of their status as emerging statesmen, as leaders of other men. And the last part, again, is back to this sexual access to women. They frequent brothels all across town. They're... they're Quite a fit. And this is different today, right, where prostitution's entirely, it's not illegal. It's always confined to a certain area of town, and it's something that gentlemen engage in, but you're not really, right, people don't, you're not photographed going in and out of the brothel. That would be bad. Uh, but, but you do it. And the students, particularly as, right, teenage men are there demonstrating sexual conquest. When they return from drinking, drinking is part of this culture. When you return from drinking, you kick open a door and force yourself on an enslaved woman. Um, and this, this happens, we don't know how often, but it shows up enough in the records that we know it must have happened a lot more. There was uh, even a gang rape of a 12-year-old girl in a field west of the university in 1850. Um, that one was pretty shocking, and other students stopped it, and those students were expelled. So they do this uh, all around. They're not, again, they're not just spoiled. They're not just hormonal. They're gentlemen and masters demonstrating their honor and power. So I want to get back to our academical village, and I've got like two minutes, and stop talking. So I just wanted to give you a sense of how often the students engage in some of these activities. This is just when they're brought before the bar. And you don't have to be able to read all the dates, but how does it play out at UVA? Well, it plays out like this. Student riots. 
Student gun use. Student misconduct riding horses. It happens a lot. And it doesn't stop with the honor code in 1842 because right, the honor code is Victorian honor imposed on the students at that point by the faculty. And although they might agree with pieces of it, this culture of mastery and honor and gentlemanly power requires them in a way to keep behaving this way. Verbal assault, physical assault, gambling. Right? Gambling, weirdly, I don't know why gambling stops in 1845. I doubt it stops. They're just not being brought before the bar for it anymore. And again, in most cases, there's, there's very little punishment. There might be a brief temporary suspension. And what I love is when they're suspended for a lot of this, they say, go stay in a hotel in Charlottesville for two weeks, and we'll see you in two weeks. Guess what they're doing at the hotel in Charlottesville? Yeah. So, oh, wait, there's more. Whoring, alcohol, uniform violations. And this is really interesting. The uniform violations are continuous until 1842, when the faculty finally realize they really hate the uniform law. They end the uniform law, and violations of the uniform law disappear. Student riots do not, though. Then we'll end right there with the beautiful lawn behind us. So students could be studious, pious, and vicious all at the same time. They weren't separate modes of existence or different types of students. Some are spoiled, but their behavior is better understood as a powerful set of cultural expectations around manhood, mastery, reputation, and leadership. So students could dress in fire, finery, fire guns, drink rum, gamble on cards, read, write, research, riot, pray, visit prostitutes, march in paramilitary array, race horses, sexually assault enslaved women, attack laborers on the street, rampage, Attempt to blow up professors. Yes, that happened. All as part of their matriculation at UVA and as part of their emergence as educated and engaged citizen leaders. So honor, slavery, and statesmanship were powerfully intertwined here and in the antebellum South. And I'm going to stop talking. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Professor. Multiple choice question. Um, uh -oh. Your, your uh, take on Edgar Allan Poe being uh, asked to leave had nothing to do with his opium trips uh, in surrounding area or his uh, widespread gambling, but only that he couldn't cover his gambling debts as, as the reason. Or another take of your response that uh, Old Cabell Hall was built to visually sort of wall off the neighborhood that was called Canada. It was mostly black and folks uh, that were, um, and that it was described as unsightly, right. contravening Jefferson's thing about the view right. in that direction. Um, and um, <laughs> your take on the origin of the honor system that it in fact with, there's some credible argument that it did not relate from Professor Davis being shot and had other um, oh, wow. roots. So, uh -oh. multiple choice. Thanks. So, so, okay, first question was Edgar Allan Poe. I, I don't know that I know the answer on Edgar Allan Poe other than to say all the behaviors he engaged in right, fit with what we're talking about here. His, I don't think his gambling debt 
was unusual, right? The myth I remember from undergraduate was that right, he got called up to Monticello, and then like Jefferson dies a month later, and like you know it was Poe causing that. I I don't think any of that's true. I think it was really a question more about his ability to pay for school here. Um, but his gambling debt is not unusual, nor is his visit right there. There are these things called body houses. They're brothels, they're taverns, they're, they're speakeasies, um, they're, opium dens, right? They're all those things kind of wrapped up in one place. Um, his visiting those would not have been unusual. And remember, people of means carry around laudanum. So you can, everybody, there's lots of opium addicts in the 19th century. This is like a snuff. So you can read women use it all the time, and they just don't know that it's opium. So you can read 19th century planner wife accounts of, oh, I had a headache today. And, right, and then you need more and more laudanum because the headache comes back every time you stop taking the opium. Um, so I think, that's, I think that, to me, Poe is a very common part of the student experience, as is maybe only being here for a year. That's not uncommon. It's not like today where everyone comes in and you're here for four years. And the second question was about Canada and the building of Cabell Hall. So the neighborhood south of the university, where now in Gibson Halls is now, when the university was being built, was largely small farms. It wasn't productive land. It's where the contractors who were building the university bought farms and lived with their enslaved people. And as construction finished, they became absentee landlords. And free people of color in particular moved in because right, this is a big urban settlement. This is the best employer in the area, even though moving close to a couple hundred white masters is maybe not the best idea. It's, it's opportunity. So they do. And that neighborhood, increasingly by the 1830s and 1840s, it's, a, it's mixed. There are white people living down there, but uh, you know, 30 or 40 free people of color living there, some owning property, some renting. And we see a few fleeting references to it called Canada in the 1850s. After the war, this is in the late 19th century, the university begins to, excuse me, buy up property down there. They want to create a nice leafy neighborhood. So they're buying up property. And after the rotunda fire, they go to the architect and say, we need new buildings. In addition to redoing the rotunda, we need new buildings. Stanford White gives them three plans, only one of which closes off the south end of the lawn. And we, I've never seen an actual proof that this is why they closed it off, but I think it's very fitting with the, that time in the Jim Crow era. Uh, the neighborhood in the newspapers is referred to as the pest hole by that point because it's low-income African-American. And they are trying to, I think, in a way, wall it off. But I don't think there's, there's not a documentary piece where you go, yep, there it is. It's just kind of a general sense that that's why they choose it. And the university, remember the, the, where these, uh, the statue of Jefferson is on the north side of the rotunda, right? That's a later invention. In 1825, that's the back door to the rotunda, right? There's a little door and a stairwell curving around the building. It's never meant to be anything but sort of inward-looking as a university. So I think the closing off of the lawn fits with that, as it does with, at that time period, uh, right, claiming more space as white-only space. And so uh, to my mind, it's probably one of the reasons why they do it. But there's no, you can't go to the Board of Visitors Minutes and prove it. So, I, I mean, that's all tied up in this, right? There's a, a running battle between faculty, right? The university has no president. It doesn't, today you come and there's deans of students, there's this whole administrative support. It's faculty and a proctor running the place, right? There's very little administrative oversight. The faculty really run it. 
And they're attempting to control the student behaviors I was outlining. Like they want students to be studious and they want them to learn. And they have a conception, unlike today, where right, we, like to, we, we love at UVA to post pictures of you know, professors sitting and having coffee with students. Right? This is a master dispensing knowledge to students. So they don't see the relationship that way. So they're tightly trying to control students. This just ramps up student misbehavior. The Davis shooting is the moment, I think, when everyone, a lot of people kind of go, whoa, right? This has gone a little too far. Someone has just died, right? It involves a pistol. It involves mask wearing. The students have been walking. Those two students were walking up and down the lawn shooting pistols before the interaction with Professor Davis. So I, I don't think it is the precipitate thing that creates, right? There's two whole years between that event and the honor committee, but it's a piece of this larger puzzle. And what I think is really cool, right, it's faculty imposed, right? It's not proposed by students, but it's an attempt. It's the first moment the faculty go, instead of running this more and more like a military camp, we're going to actually appeal to this culture, right? This is appealing to Victorian manhood that honorable people don't behave in these ways. Uh, but I, I think you can see briefly in the slides, it doesn't stop it, right? They continue to riot into the 1850s. It, it, it doesn't really go away. I think the, the honor we know is really a, uh, an understanding that comes about after the Civil War uh, rather clearly, if that, that makes sense. But that, that's also hard to document. Sorry, that was a long. Sorry. <laughs> do you want me to do this? I'm sorry. I was, I, I can, okay. In the generation before the university, when Thomas Jefferson was a student at William and Mary, was it the same sort of thing in his generation as far as the, the young gentlemen, the young masters? I'm just trying to picture Thomas Jefferson whipping inferiors and so forth. I, th so that's a, I think he is, for whatever reason, I, I've never read any account of him being involved in anything like that. But again, Alexander Hamilton is a younger contemporary who's involved in a duel. So it's, it's part of the culture. Um, I think, again, and I don't know of any accounts. I've not studied Williamsburg well enough to say whether it was frequent. But I think the urban context changes this. And what I love is he designs a university where he's imagining, right, he walks down Duke of Gloucester Street and sits in the parlors of his professors and literally does what we do today, right, has a coffee or a tea with them. And that's his educational experience. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know other than to say it's definitely something that's going on in the 18th century, but it seems to really ramp up in the 19th century. And by that point, right, Jefferson's an old man, so it's not really fully his world. Um, since you mentioned that some of the people, uh, you know, at least most of the uh, guys who were coming to a uh, UVA were slaveholders. Was there ever an issue of them wanting to bring like a val, uh, an enslaved, like I don't know, as a slave, uh, you know, like a foot servant or a valet, and figuring yeah. out like housing or whatever, or the faculty being like, we don't want you to bring this yeah. person here or whatever for whatever reason, or were there issues like housing issues or I don't know. So great question. Actually, the first enactment of the university at Jefferson's request is no student shall bring an enslaved person. They're banned from doing that from the opening. So they're technically not allowed to bring enslaved people with them to the university or house them here. Uh, they almost certainly show up with enslaved servants with them. Uh, we have fleeting evidence that they are, you can't really see it in this picture, but there's a down kind of where now Gibson are now, would have been a, there's a gate down there with like a carousel and a wall. 
And that was the university gate, and this speaks to that Canada neighborhood. We know they sometimes brought them with them, but then rented them out locally, and they were going to be housed adjacently, and they'd meet them there. Um, students do, because they're always, they always find the uh, service at the university insufficient. We there are repeated times where students band together and rent an enslaved person and have them living in the room. But they're not allowed to do that, and that's, that's stopped. And that's a whole nother lecture about how Jefferson, right, his ambivalence about slavery. He doesn't want slavery to be a visible part of the student experience here. So as he's imagining his ideal for the university, he designs it in very specific ways to sort of hide the life and labor of the enslaved. It doesn't work, but then in his head it imagines. So they're not allowed to bring them. They probably do. Uh, but the university, there's no space for them because Jefferson doesn't design a university with space for the enslaved, right? That's one of the issues. There's a build-out after it opens of dependencies to house the enslaved and for the enslaved to work in. And then there's a running battle over all the basement spaces about who controls them. Uh, but it's usually the faculty that control them. I have a two-part question. One is... Oh, here. <laughs> uh, the first is... Uh, the earliest date that you showed this uh, riotous behavior occurring was 1825, which is the year Jefferson died. So did this behavior exist while he was still alive? Oh, yeah. And the second part is, when did the emphasis change to academics? When I was here in the 1960s, you know, we partied on the weekends, but during the week, we studied so the emphasis changed at some point. Well, it didn't, it didn't. I mean, it, it, a couple things. So one, Jefferson dies in 1826. And right, there's a moment in that first year, yes, they, they riot as soon as they get here. Because right, this is hardwired into this culture. And every attempt to make them follow orders produces a certain kind of reaction. Uh, he's very worried about it. right? I don't think, and this kind of goes to this gentleman's question earlier, I don't think Jefferson for whatever reason, fully understands the 19th century culture. So he, he expects everyone to come here, right? My, my running joke about this is, so we'll get to the academics question, you come here to drink from the cup of knowledge. Well, they drink from a cup. It's not always the cup of knowledge, right? Uh, not unlike students today. So I, I, he's pretty upset about it, right? There's a, there's a moment where people describe him, like he comes down to the university and he's like crying. Because this is terrible. This is not what he imagined at all. But that doesn't mean that's what I was hope was clear. Some of these students, they're here to study and learn. You can be both, right? And that goes to your, so I think that's part of the culture. What happens early is it's, it operates in some ways as a finishing school. So you just come here, maybe you go to class. So some people, they're only here for like a year. They don't really apply themselves. And then they go on to do great things. And we call them alums now, right? But if you're here for a year now, you're not really an alum, right? You just took classes here for a year. That's partly because we're not yet to the four-year degree model. But that develops. And throughout this period, there are definitely students. That, I mean, Gessner Harrison, he's a Virginian. He's a student here, right? He's a whiz at languages. Um, so y you can be that way. But that, and I'm not, I don't know what Gessner Harrison did in his free time. But you can be Gessner Harrison in the classroom and still engage in some of these behaviors. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. My question is, who owned all these slaves that keep getting beaten? Oh, yeah. Well, so there's a, between 100 and 200 enslaved people at the university at any point 
after it opens in 1825. They're owned by every professor. Every professor at UVA owns at least one enslaved person, sometimes many more. Hotel keepers, right, there are six hotels. There's usually only three or four in operation as dining halls. Those are rented out to subcontractors who are expected to create, right, six days a week, it's three meals a day and then two on Sunday. Cook all the meals. There's no Kroger or Food Lion, right, so you have to be raising chickens, literally farm-to-table food going on here. They, they're the largest enslavers at the university. The university itself rents upwards of 60 to 80 people a year or more during construction and continues to rent people after construction. So it's really complicated. That's where it's an urban context. Uh, the university wrestles with this. Right, the, Every night, it's dark. The students are running around in masks, shooting guns and drinking. Enslaved people, about 10 o'clock at night, Right, the work finally stops. That's their time for community. And they're moving about, and right, if they're rented to the university, they're not from Charlottesville. So they have family 10 miles away, 20 miles away. So there's complaints at night about enslaved people moving through the university. It's, right, it's not as walled off as they would like it. So it's a really porous environment. So there's just enslaved people everywhere. So students, everywhere they go, are going to interact with enslaved people. And that's, so it's, it could be a professors. And we hear all the accounts, right? We hear them attacking professors, enslaved people, hotel keepers, boarding houses. Um, but at night, too, if the food's bad, who do you get a good meal from? And so there's a whole nighttime economy that's intimate and really strange. So there's all this incredible violence, but it's enslaved people who are selling food and providing, selling alcohol to students at night. And we know that there's often, right, there's the brothels and what goes on at night, it's often, they're interracial spaces. So right, gentlemen at night in a gambling environment can sit at a table with an enslaved person. So we have this man named Thornton who's routinely found at cards. He's accused of cheating a student at cards. He's then accused of stealing, and then he's one of those people whipped. He's owned by a merchant nearby. He's not even enslaved at the university. But at night, he's off the clock, too, so he comes on. Does that sort of, yeah, thank you. Lunch. Lunch. You made it. On behalf of the Alumni Association and Lifetime Learning, please help me thank Kurt Von Dack for his wonderful lecture this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. And Please take a quick moment just to fill out those feedback cards. It's really helpful. Have a great rest of the reunions. Take care.